Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning, everyone. We had a a really amazing weekend this weekend. It was the father-son camping trip. Uh, David Lynch, John Walt, Chris Faulkner, Trey Miller, Ben Wall, Drew Hill, myself were the adults. Well, we thought we were. Um, And our boys, it was an unbelievable time. Thank you, Drew, for leading that. Um, Some people call it a camping trip. I like to refer it affectionately as a death march. We went three miles up a mountain. I think Drew's trying to kill me. Um, we, some people drop, jumped 20, off a 25-foot ledge. Some people slid down a waterfall slide. We camped out. We ate s'mores. We ate s'mores. We ate s'mores. Ramen noodles. We played frisbee golf. Great things. But the most important thing for us was this concept of milestones. We talked about the milestones of our lives with our kids and each other. We prayed for each other. You know, we went through a big milestone this week. We took our son to college, Joshua, our oldest son. I like to think that Angela Kay and I are a balance. She was like, don't leave. I was like, it's time to go. In the middle, we miss him a lot. Um, (laughs) But there were a lot of milestones for us to consider personally. Today we're going to talk about a milestone in some folks' lives, but specifically a milestone in the life of Jesus. So I would invite you to pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for your word, which is true, that we can trust your words to us today in a time when we don't know what to believe and what to trust. We're so confused. We're so scattered Your word pierces through the cloudiness and the fuzziness of life and reminds us of what is good and beautiful and true, what is holy, that we can trust the Lord Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So this morning, I pray we would see him, we would see the beauty of Jesus, And that you would speak through the power of your Holy Spirit to our hearts. Our hearts may be renewed and reminded of the gospel. That in Christ you are reconciling the whole world to yourself. Us included. So we thank you for the power of your word. We pray for this time in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen you like to turn in your thing, whatever it is, a device, a Bible, um, to Luke chapter 12. We'll talk about that. Today's gospel lesson has a way of hitting us. If you were listening and paying attention during the reading, it has a way of hitting us like a glass of ice cold water at 5 a.m. in the morning while you're sleeping in the month of January. It's stark. It's not something we really like to hear or expect to hear, and in many churches, I think in order to kind of downplay the impact of it, they do a whole sermon series called The Hard Sayings of Jesus, almost like the Band-Aid principle. If we're going to talk about it, let's just rip this sucker off, package it together so we can get back to the nice stuff to make us feel good. But I think that these words just come at us sort of uh, unexpectedly. Jesus says some things that will that will cause us to consider who he was. 
There's three words I'd like to use to describe the text today. The first one is this, fire, the fire of judgment. Secondly, division, the sting of decision. And thirdly, allegiance, the beauty of Jesus. So the first one is fire. I'll put the first verse up. Jesus says, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and I wish it were already kindled. I've come to bring fire, and I wish the coals were hot, and I want to pour gasoline on that fire. might be a way that we think about it. Fire consumes. It's the metaphor that we see all over Scripture for judgment. It destroys, it resets, it cleanses the thing that lasts. In the New Testament, we see fire is what purifies. Gold melts at 1,947 degrees Fahrenheit. Without that kind of fire, gold would not be pure gold. The context of Luke is this. People have been following Jesus. They've been listening to him takes them up on a mountainside. Some would say this is right before the feeding of the 5,000. It's a big event in the life of the people who are following Jesus. And he's becoming more clear and more urgent about his message. We're probably a, a little afraid to think about Jesus's words this way. But I would remind you this morning, if you're sitting here, you will probably come at this passage with one of two groups. The first group would be, I'm a little comfortable right now. I'm a little lackadaisical. I'm a little laissez-faire right now in life. Jesus' words have a way of afflicting the comforted. Fire. Oh, how I wish it was ready and I want to bring it. It will afflict us who are comfortable. But if you are afflicted, if you are struggling, there's hard things going on in many of our lives. Jesus' words, you'll see, are very comforting. They work both ways. Who are you this morning? There is this strong sense out of this passage that Jesus is excited about judgment. This is often different from the picture of Jesus that we're portrayed. He's kind of this milk toast just soft person running around saying wise, pithy things, encouraging good cheer. But here Jesus is saying, I am ready to bring judgment to this world, not the picture that we like to hear. Last week I listened painfully to stories of the shootings. We're all united that we wish it would stop. It's horrible. This is what evil does to humanity. It destroys. When Jesus says he wishes the fire was kindled, it shows his true heart. Here's the true heart of Jesus. Jesus hates evil. He absolutely, unequivocally hates it. And he was patiently urgent to tear it out of the world. You see, his fire also purifies us. So fire has a, a double-edged sword. It judges evil. It purifies those who are righteous. It is severe and it's beautiful. Jesus loves us. He hates evil in this world. He pursues us. He comes after us. He gives his life for us. No question. Jesus loves me, this I know. But he hates evil 
sin, evil, and death. See, the judgment of God, which we don't like to talk about much, is perfectly consistent with the character of God. God is judging and loving at the same time. He has the unique divine ability to hold those two things together so they do not contradict one another. Anyone who is thoughtful, you see, craves judgment. Think about this with me for a second. You don't think you want a God who judges evil with wrath, but deep down inside, you really do. Otherwise, school shootings, war, greed, and hatred all go unchecked in this life. Jesus is equally committed to judgment as he is love. You know, we say this week after week. We say, we believe that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. The author of Hebrews says it this way in the few chapters before the passage we had read. He said, and just as it is appointed for a man, a person, to die once, and after that comes judgment. Sorry, that was the biggest fat fly I've ever seen in my life. And for them to face judgment, that fly got his judgment. See, it's a perfect illustration. I couldn't have planned it better. But we modern, sensible people, we don't want to believe in a God who exacts judgment. We really love the love part, but not the judgment part. I think this quote is helpful for us to understand this. Richard Niebuhr, a theologian in the early part of the last century, said he was talking about the way we view judgment. He says, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations or the activities of a Christ without a cross. We don't want judgment. But lest you become very sad listening to me like, wow, this is supposed to be a happy day. You must hear the next words of Jesus. Remember, he just said, oh, I, I come to bring fire to the earth and how I wish it was ready. But right after that, verse 50, he says, but I have a baptism to undergo. And what constraint or struggle I am under until it is completed. The word constraint is like a siege of a city. You see Jesus in this tension here. I want to bring judgment in this world because I hate evil. I see the destruction and the damage of evil. But wait, I've got a, I've got a baptism to go through first. This is the patient urgency of Jesus. I'd like to start a fire but I cannot. I have to go to a baptism. Jesus, who is the judge and the creator of us all, in this one verse now demonstrates he's turning and he is becoming the judged. Think about this powerful statement. I, who am the judge, am turning to become the judged. Here's our knee-jerk reaction we see evil and destruction, and we, don't, and we want it to go away, usually what other people are doing. But we really don't want it to go away, because if it goes away, it must go away in us as well. I'm quick to judge and say, isn't it awful out there, missing that I too must undergo a judgment of my heart. 
Jesus is the one who assumes judgment. Possibly the most important thing that you can hear this morning is Jesus' work is action to us. He is the one who assumes our judgment. He wants to light a fire, but instead he lights himself on fire and burns for the evil in this world. I have a picture. Um, it's the picture of the altarpiece in Ghent at Ghent. It's a famous work. I think it was commissioned in the 1200s. I want you to just look at this and listen with your minds. Revelation, I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When the Lamb opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants their brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been. How long? Just a little bit longer. If there is no judgment, if this scene isn't how history concludes, then let me say it this way. There is no standard in this life. If there is no judgment, there is no standard and our lives are completely arbitrary. And without a standard, how can you dare say to anyone else, something is wrong? Without judgment, no standard, and who are you then to judge? Except you make yourself the judge of everything and everyone. This is why Jesus' baptism is so important. If I live my, my life as if there is no judgment, what happens is it creates in me a tremendous despair. Then the news cycle, 24-7, comes at me and reminds me, it seems like life is senseless and hopeless and purposeless. My sense of right and wrong is arbitrary, and ultimately what I do to others or what is done to me just doesn't matter without judgment. There is no hope for this world. I think bumper stickers can be helpful occasionally. Here's one that I like. Life is hard and then you die. That's true if there is no judgment. But if there is judgment, then I have hope in this life that God will make all the wrong things right. This is why Jesus is saying, I have a fire to bring and oh how I wish it was kindled. When Jesus came, his baptism was his judgment. The first and most important judgment was for Jesus. His baptism was a baptism of death. Listen, there's a story in one of the other Gospels. Jesus is walking with the disciples, and they say to him, 
hey, listen, you seem to be, have big dreams and big plans in this world. When you come into your kingdom and you get your power, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand? And Jesus turns to them and says, you do not know what you're asking. Can you undergo the baptism by which I'm about to go under? Can you drink the cup? By which I'm about to drink. In the Old Testament, the cup was a symbol of the judgment of God. It was called the cup of wrath, that God would pour out his judgment for evil in this world. Jesus is saying, You don't know what you're asking to sit at my left hand or my right hand and have power. You don't understand what I'm gonna undergo. I'm gonna go undergo a baptism of judgment for you and for the sins of the whole world. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he couldn't help but say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Each week after week, we celebrate the sacrament of communion. A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward spiritual reality. We repeat Jesus' words at the table when we break bread and we break it. We say, this is my body which is broken for you, given for you. The summary of the gospel, friends, is this, that Jesus Christ has done something for us. That's why we hold up a cup and we say, drink this, all of you, the blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of your sins. Something done on our behalf. Something you and I possibly couldn't do for ourselves. When we were on our death march, I quickly realized I'm going to die. I'm out of shape. My knee hurts. And fortunately, Huck Miller handed me his walking stick. I cannot, I'm telling you, I wouldn't have made it up and down the mountain with the walking stick. Somebody else gave me a gift that enabled me to walk. Jesus' gift of baptism, his judgment, is what makes it possible for evil and sin to be taken out of me and the whole world. A fire, yes, he says. A big, bad burning fire but the fire landed on him and not us second point division verse 51 on the screen Jesus says do you think that I came to bring peace on the earth wait now that's what we hear at Christmas what's going on here he says no I tell you division Sounds really great. It's almost like the teacher. Those of us who are teachers in this room, we thank God for you. You got a big week coming ahead. Imagine if a student comes into your class and you're talking about how you're going to get along and that student stands up and says, I'm not here to get along. I'm here to blow this place apart. I want these people fighting with these people and that parent mad at that parent. I've not come to bring happiness and joy but I've actually come to bring division in your midst. What do you think Jesus is getting at? Here's what he's talking about. The kind of, bring, of division Jesus brings is division about himself, who he is, 
not getting people to fight with one another, but getting to people to see who he really was and what he was teaching and what he was about to do for us. Jesus is meek and mild, but he's not without controversy. Some people really loved him, and I mean they really loved him. Stories of people weeping and following him and crying out for him. And some people, they really hated him. They gnashed their teeth. They got together behind the scenes. They conspired to have him killed. It's hard to be lukewarm about Jesus if you learn who he really is. He causes you to love him or to hate him. The people who hated him had the most to lose if he really was who he said he was, which reveals the kind of God that we want in this life. We often want someone safe and nice. It wouldn't be a sermon that I've delivered if, it wouldn't ha- if we don't have a quote from C.S. Lewis. My apologies. What would really satisfy us would be a God who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so long as they are contented? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. Raise your hand if you're a grandparent. It's called redemption. (laughs) You get to hold them, and when they start crying and they have a dirty diaper, you get to say, oh, here's your mom and dad. It's a beautiful thing, redemption. A senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might truly be said at the end of each day, A good time was had by all. Jesus is saying to us this morning, I'm willing to divide the most precious and intimate relationships over me. See, if judgment is what the world should get, Jesus received judgment. And then what we think about him and do because of him is singularly the most important thing we do in life. It is more important than any other relationship, period. Now, I'm not saying our family relationships are irrelevant. Quite the opposite. Jesus also said, love your neighbor as yourself. But let's listen again to his words this morning. Verse 52. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Two, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Last February, I got to travel to Dubai, which is um, borders Saudi Arabia. And in Dubai, I got to meet an Anglican Christian from Iran who was able to travel to um, Dubai because of passport uh, reciprocation. And this man says, in Iran, 
there are a few churches that are legal, and the Anglican Church in Tehran is one of them. There's eight members, and if anyone converts to Christianity, it costs them greatly. And if any Christian shares the love of Christ with a person in Iran and they're caught, it costs them greatly. And this man was telling me of a friend that he was sharing the gospel with over a period of years, and the man converted to Jesus. He lost his family as a result. And if discovered today, he could possibly lose his life. It's illegal. It's blasphemous. This is the essence of what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, if I am who I really am, then what you think about me and what you do after me is singularly the most important thing in your life above everything else. And in fact, when you follow Christ and you believe in him, he reorders your relationships so you live them rightly. This is what he's getting at with division. The third point, allegiance. Today we get to baptize some people and it's tempting to say, oh, how cute and how precious and how special. And it is, it's celebratory. But in another sense, baptism signifies our allegiance to this Lord and Savior, not to a nation, a flag, a philosophy, but to a king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism implies several important things for us. If his words are true, then this is what baptism means. It is both subversive and dangerous. Let me explain it. Let's go with the first word, subversive. To subvert something is to undo it without overt action. So to, to subvert something is to undo it. A few years ago, a group of churches were bombed in Pakistan. You may remember this recently. And it was actually even a few months ago as well. The next Sunday, churches in Pakistan had the largest crowds ever. Think about that. Bomb threats, week after, the largest crowds ever. They interviewed one of the leaders from this church in Pakistan, and he said this. He said, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm not afraid if they blow us up. If you kill me, I win. How about that for a church marketing strategy? Come to Church of the Redeemer. We're going to blow you up. We'll see how well that goes, right? It's subversive. It says, I'm not afraid of this world. In fact, I see this world for how it truly is, because I know who Jesus truly is. Completely subversive. Baptism asks its recipients to completely renounce the world and the flesh and the devil. That's very subversive thinking in this world. The second piece of baptism is that we undergo, that we undergo is it's very dangerous. Not this pool of water. Don't worry, parents. It's dangerous because it threatens powers and principalities. It threatens the philosophies of this day. I'm always amazed at listening to how church changed an empire. It's still happening today. Rodney Stark is a historian, and he says this about the church. 
because of their allegiance to Christ, this is what the church did, and they changed everything. And I think it works today as well. They outlived their culture, they outloved their culture, and they outthought their culture. They outlived it, they outloved it, and they outthought it. Let's work through those briefly for a second. They outlived it. They practiced wholeness. They saw every person worthy as a result of their allegiance to Christ. They saw their own bodies as a temple of God to be taken care of, to be shared as a gift. When babies were thrown on trash dumps, the Christians went in and adopted them. When they watched the decadence and the corruption go rampant, they sought reforms. They loved their city. They prayed for their city. When it came to ideas, they outthought the culture. Here's the best idea that's revealed in our movies and our songs today. Here it is. You must be true to yourself above everything else. You must be true to yourself. The Christian said, that's nice and precious, but no. The greater story is you must know Christ and Him crucified. Think about that. Today in baptism, we're going to see three important things reminded. And I'll close with this. First, Jesus is our judgment. He has received what we owe. He has received what the whole world owes by his own choice. He was the true judge who became judged. Nobody gets away with anything ultimately in this life if Jesus truly is the judge. Either we get judged, Hebrews 9.27, or Jesus takes our judgment in this life. It's that simple. A Christian is never, ever to see themselves superior to another person, even the worst, because we know someone else paid my bill. We took the kids to my father's pizza in Black Mountain, and we sat them at the table so the grown-ups could sit at one table, and they were being kids. And there were two ladies that sat beside them, and I imagine it wasn't the most pleasant lunch. And so Trey Miller went over and offered to buy their lunch as an act of kindness. And they said no. And Trey Miller came back and said, it was the best of both worlds. <laughs> we offered, and they had already paid their bill. <laughs> Somebody else paid their bill. That's why baptism is a glorious thing to celebrate. It's a reminder, Christ has already paid our bill. Secondly, Jesus is our affection. He is worthy of all our affections and attention. Not because of fear and judgment. I don't have to go through this life fearing judgment because Christ has already paid my judgment. Every great story, every great movie, let's go through the list. Star Wars, Avengers, Dark Knight Rises... Titanic for you romantics, Saving Private Ryan, Gravity, Glory, The Last Samurai, which is what Ben Wall is trying to become, 
Chronicles of Narnia, they all conclude with one person laying down their life for others or for many. It's the greatest story in the history of the world. One taking the bill for others. That's why baptism is also a baptism to life. In Jesus, he is our true life. Lastly, a baptized person is very, very dangerous. A baptized person is a world changer. Jesus' baptism changed the world. A baptized person is a person who lives for Christ and is a family changer, a community changer, a village changer, a light in the darkness, a living, walking, breathing appeal to see the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.